Napa know-how. It takes a lot to get excited about a bag, but most bags can't save you 20% on auto parts. That's 20% off headlamps, 20% off oil filters, 20% off virtually anything you can fit inside the 99-cent Napa reusable bag. So tell your buddies, there's a bag they just have to check out. Quality parts, helpful people. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. At participating Napa Auto Parts stores while supplies last. Minimum three items. Exclusions apply. Offer ends 10-31-17. Okay, Kevin, for the grand prize of $1 million, what color is the White House? Um, I know this, I know this, I know this. Um, five seconds. Oh, switching to Geico could save you a bunch of money on car insurance? Okay. Judges? That's true, Kevin. Bill will allow it. Congratulations. You're a winner. Woo! Geico, because saving 15% or more on car insurance is always a great answer. You are Locked On Cavaliers, your daily podcast on the Cleveland Cavaliers, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Locked On Cavaliers podcast. As always, I'm Chris Manning from FearTheSword.com. Joining me today is a writer from Fear the Sword. It's Mike Zavangano. Mike, what's going on? Not too much, man. Uh, you know, we're we're in the lull of it now. We got, what, a week off or so. So trying to stay engaged, watch uh, a little bit of the other series, see what's going on. But, you know, happy that the Cavs get to rest and uh, happy that I'm getting to rest as well myself. Yeah, I selfishly and very excited about the eight days off uh the Cavs, i think it benefits them greatly something i think we'll talk about a little bit here but i get to sleep at normal hours now which is like a very like selfish thing but uh when i'm like if there's a home game i'm probably in bed at 1 30 i get up at for 5 30 to go to the gym before work uh because I, I just drink a lot of coffee which is like fine like i'm happy to do it but it's just like i get to like go to bed at like 11 o'clock and it's just it's beautiful like i'm all for it yeah, I'm really hoping that this uh, Celtics Wizards series goes seven games and not six because I, I think that that schedule is is significantly better um, just in terms of it starting on the Wednesday and playing on the Friday versus starting on the Monday and you know skipping that Friday the 19th and then just playing on the 21st. So selfishly, again, I, I'm hoping for that. But you know, it's uh, been an interesting series, I guess, to watch so far. Maybe there'll be. A- a couple close games down the stretch, but you know, so far, just like that Houston series, it's basically been blowout city both ways. Yeah, like interesting blowouts, but not these like close dynamic games. Of course, the Cavs haven't had any close games either, really. Um, who do you who do you think's getting out of that series, out of Wizards and Celtics? Um, I picked the Wizards uh, at the beginning, but I, I think with you know the two games left in Boston, um, it's hard to see a road team winning a game at this point, honestly. I feel like both both teams have played really well at home and really terribly on the road, and it, I don't really know. Obviously, there are some adjustments left to make, you know, Oubre coming back in and, and whatnot, but I, I think I'll stick with Boston just, you know, closing it out at home in seven and neither team winning a home game the entire series. But it's kind of hard to get a read on it when, you know, you're just seeing blowouts both ways and you can't really dig into – much of anything besides you know the wizards going on a couple massive you know 22 or 26 point runs 
So it's like weird, and then we'll get to what we're gonna talk about today. But I think that they've been better for the four games. Like if talking about like who's been better for more more of that series, I think it's been Washington. Like I think Boston has like one was like really good in game two, and I, I think that was game two was the the really crazy overtime game. Yeah, they were just better like when it mattered. Um, but Washington's probably gonna punch themselves for losing that game. I just think the Wizards have like they've blown a fair amount of leads in the series. Um, I, I think they've. I think they've been better. Like, I just think they've been better for whatever that actually means. I don't know, but I, I think, like, they're, they've they had, like, higher peaks for longer stretches. Boston, I think, has just been sort of there in a, in a way that has presented themselves able to pull out those first two games at home. And then there's nothing they're really going to do about that 26-point uh, run for Washington in game, in game four. Yeah, I saw, I think Kevin Pelton tweeted that, Teams who are in the Wizards position, so the road team, but they've had a positive point differential through four games when the series has been tied two to two, I think are like 12 and 42, he tweeted, since 1983-84. So it, I think it's just one of those things where, you know, it's basically a three-game series now and you get two games at home and, and more likely than not, the home team's going to be favored in those. But I agree with you. I think that the Wizards, outside of, you know, those bench minutes have been much better. Their starters are obviously better. It's just a matter of how much can you build it up so your bench doesn't blow it. I'd like to see Brandon Jennings get fewer minutes, uh, maybe go more to Sadoransky or just, you know, keep Wald in there. But uh, it's been tough for them when when the benches come on the floor, and those are really the times when Boston has gotten back in the game. So, you know, if you're looking ahead to the Cavs, whether you're going to play one or the other, I think Washington probably has the better starters and Boston has the better bench. So, you know, you never know with that LeBron and bench unit if you want to play the Wizards and just kind of, you know, dominate those starts of the second and fourth quarters or if you're going to play the Celtics and it's going to be at least more even between their two lineups. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. And I think... I just, I just think, like, they had a chance to win that game. And I think them getting Goubert back is going to help. But, yeah, I don't know. I think, like, how Boston – I think how Boston plays is going to be sort of interesting because, like, Isaiah hasn't got as many foul calls, but I think the Wizards have done a, a, maybe a, an adjustment in how they defended him. The one thing I will say is that the Cavs – I think if you're looking at who they would – who would, like, give – if you're looking for a close Cavs series – I think Washington, from how they talk about Boston and how they've kind of reacted to Boston, I don't think Boston, like, threatens them. I think, at least, to the very least, I think Beal and Wall, as a duo, would have their attention more than Boston would. That's kind of what I think about where the Cavs are going to kind of factor in this. I don't think I've... With how the Cavs have played, I think they're going to cruise through either of the series, frankly, but I think Washington might kind of threaten them just uh, just enough to maybe get them to go full bore for like three of three of the of a four or five game series yeah that was the nugget in that uh zach Lowe piece that he wrote yesterday about the raptors as well is that he you know it was just in one of the graphs i think in the middle of the story said that the Cavs really haven't given much thought to anybody in the east besides john wall and brad beal and i, I think that just from a defensive standpoint that that makes sense because if you're playing the Celtics, you still have a pretty solid matchup for Kyrie and being able to, you know, have him on Avery Bradley and, you know, put JR, put Shump on uh, IT. And Shump has obviously had uh, great success in the past guarding Isaiah Thomas. Obviously, he's definitely evolved this season, but that's a matchup that the Cavs probably think that uh, they can do decent in. And then 
you have the Wizards backcourt where you do have Wall and Beal, and it just becomes, you know, you probably end up with Kyrie on Beal anyways and chasing him off screens as opposed to playing John Wall. But definitely the the firepower of those two guys exceeds the firepower of uh, Avery Bradley. And so you would think that the Cavs would feel more comfortable with just being able to slot Kyrie in on Bradley and go from there. Yeah, so let's talk about the Cavs defense. We were going to do the inverse of this, but we're just going to roll with this. Uh, Cavs currently have the fourth best defensive rating in the playoffs. That's at 105.9. That's It's .1 behind uh, the Rockets, who are third. It's .1 ahead of where the, the Hawks were in the first round, .2 ahead of the Wizards, um, a .9 ahead of Boston, who's seventh. Golden State's at the clearly at the top at 97.4, which is just effing absurd. Like, that's absurd. Um, and there's just not really a way around that. And, of course, like, they haven't necessarily played the most dynamic offenses, but, like, they deserve credit for that. They're a great offensive defensively in the regular season. What the Cavs have done defensively so far has been has been variations of the trapping Paul George and having Jared defend him with LeBron James playing center field. You saw wrinkles of this added in the second round series where it wasn't just a full-on trap. Like, that's how we mostly have described it. But there really was some blitzing, uh, just some blitzing more so than trapping. There was the trapping and making DeRozan get around, uh, you know, those those traps and make a read. And there was, there was later in the series, a few moments where you have Tristan Thompson switch on to DeRozan. Something the Cavs like to do. It's something that they've done in the past. It's something they did in last year's finals. What the but the, I think like the one connector of all of this is, that, is two things. LeBron is playing center field functionally. He's playing free safety is a better way of putting it. And they're they're relying a lot on being able to rotate and just get guys in the right spot. That to me is it requires the Cavs to be more connected and talk more than we definitely saw in the regular season. Though you can tell their motivation is a little bit different now. I wonder how much of that strategy, which I think they are trying out stuff to use against Golden State with this particular group of guys. Um, I think that's why you saw some of these lineup switches in Game 4 to kind of tinker with stuff. I, I think that right now they're just trying to figure out what's, what, what's going to work against Golden State. I'm not sure what they're doing now actually is what will would work against Golden State, or at least it would be the best option against what Golden State is. Yeah, I mean, I think that if you're going to say what Ty Lu is about in terms of designing game plans for the playoffs. I think that we've seen enough series now to say that this is kind of quote unquote classic Ty Lu is that basically he's going to make your lesser jump shooters make jump shots. I mean, the Cavs, you know, have, have basically done this for two years now where they're going to shade your best guys, whether it's Paul George, whether it's Lowry and DeRozan, you know, wh- whether it's, you know, maybe, John Wall, Brad Beal, Isaiah Thomas, whoever it is, those are the guys that the Cavs are going to say, look, you're just not going to beat us. Instead, we're going to make guys like P.J. Tucker, like a Serge Ibaka, like a Norman Powell, prove that they can shoot from the outside and beat us. And Toronto just wasn't able to do that, as we saw. I mean, they were 2 of 18 on unguarded threes in, in the last game. And it's just one of those things where this is clearly what Lou likes to do. I think that, like you said, whether it's trapping pin downs, I mean, they're even getting to the point where they would just trap DeRozan when he had the ball in the middle of the floor. And I thought that that was a little bit over-aggressive. But it's one of those things, I think, where Lou probably feels that the Cavs' defense is going to be more active, more connected, 
talking more, if they're going to be doing these ultra aggressive schemes, as opposed to something that's more conservative. And maybe you get beat when you're you know, playing ultra aggressive because you don't quite make the right rotation every time. But at least the energy and the effort level are definitely ramped up because guys know that they have to be making that next rotation or being in that next spot. And so people, I think, are at least more active on that end. And, and it's obviously helped the Cavs throughout these uh, playoffs so far. Yeah, I think that that's a very good read on this. This is something Lou has done. That's a really good way of putting it. And I think against Toronto, they just – Toronto's not a good decision-making team. <laughs> you know, like, they're not a team full of, like, very smart guys, like, that are going to make these the correct basketball decision all the time or, you know, 95 90% of the time. Golden State is that, right? Like, Golden State, aside from, you know, some Steph Curry behind the back passes at the wrong moment, like, makes the right play. They will get the ball to Clay. They may overpass a little bit, but typically they're just going to get the ball where it needs to be and make the Cavs rotate and move and, and kind of – and more often than not, they're going to catch the Cavs just a little bit late. The Cavs, I wonder if they have to switch more and that we've seen so far in that series. Um, I wonder – I think, like, they're, the Cavs actually might be okay against that starting lineup of Golden State, right? Like, I think – I'd be curious to see how they match, but I think they could probably make it work. Um, you know, like – Tristan's probably defending Draymond. I th- well, maybe not. He's probably defending Zaza. Are you hiding Kevin Love on Draymond? I don't know. Are you, LeBron maybe defends him? Like, I, I think there's some questions. But I think, like, they can probably find ways to make it work. I think the death lineup is the one that creates all these problems that you just don't have against Toronto and, and against Indiana where, like, the Cavs aren't intimidated by, like, Corey Joseph creating off the dribble. They don't care if Jonas Valanciunas is, is posting up Tristan Thompson in one-on-one. Like, they just don't care. They're fine with that. And I think that's certainly part of why the Cavs' defenses look better. At the same time, I think we have seen meaningful improvement. I think the effort level's better. I think LeBron's been really good on that end. I think Kyrie's had some really good defensive games. I think Tristan's played really well. And I, and I think the the little rejiggering Lou has done to get Tristan with that second quarter bench lineup is a really smart move. Yeah, I, I mean, the Cavs have a 96.5 defensive rating with Tristan Thompson on the floor in the playoffs. When Tristan Thompson sits it jumps up to 126.7 so I think that right there just shows I mean Tristan's been excellent on that end Uh, I I think that he's been protecting the rim extremely well he's defending nine shots a game at the rim in the Raptors series uh, which was basically three times what Serge Ibaka defended and so Tristan's been there he's been in the right spots and I I think the rotating health defense has, has helped him a lot as well because I think he's been able to, you know, see more guys get in the right spot. So he's going to be, you know, that last line of defense more often just because other guys are moving and he doesn't have to cover as much for other guys' mistakes. So I think that that's been positive. And on on your point of, of, you know, how the the Cavs might defend the Warriors, I think that if they do see the Celtics, um, you might get a, a bit of a preview of what they might do against, you know, Draymond Green as a screener uh, with how they defend Al Horford. He's obviously not Draymond Green. Uh, he's he's not that level of playmaker, but he's definitely a better playmaker out of the role than anybody that the Cavs have seen so far in the playoffs. Certainly better than a Miles Turner or a Jonas Valanciunas or you know any guy on the Raptors. Horford shooting 53% from three so far in the playoffs. Uh, that's on about two and a half attempts per game. 
Uh, Draymond is also right up there. He's taking about four a game. Uh, and Horford's, you know, had games of six, seven assists, something like that. So the way that the Cavs defend Isaiah Thomas and Al Horford in that pick and roll might be a decent proxy and might be a, a decent way for them to kind of gauge what may or may not work against the Warriors. Basically like a, a light warm up before the, the actual big test if Boston is the team that they see. Yeah, I almost think Washington, although like the pieces are a little bit different, might even offer something similar because they're going to have to contend with Beal. They're going to have to contend with Porter as a shooter. Like Bogdanovich as sort of like a very, very light Clay Thompson as a shooter. Like they have some of the same things where like you maybe don't have the creation of a Draymond because um, Markeith certainly isn't going to do that at a, at a high level and like, like Horford's going to do. But like Beal and those guys are going to like offer the Cavs, I think, a test – in a in, in a way, Golden State not like at the same degree, but like they're gonna actually push the Cavs to rotate and like actually defend other guys. Like I think against Boston, unless it's Horford and Isaiah, the Cavs are just gonna like trap Isaiah. They're gonna make Isaiah like dart through double teams. Like I, I think of the first play of that Cavs beatdown against Boston, where they trapped Isaiah because Amir Johnson set the pick, and as long if it's not all Horford or maybe even Olenek or Drebko, if they're gonna go there. The Cavs are just going to try to dare Isaiah to zoom around there or to go through. And Isaiah is going to do that sometimes because he's really, really good. But I, I think what Wall, at least, like, if he's going to – he's bigger, he's a little faster. He can cause, I think, more problems for, like, physically for Kyrie. If I mean, not maybe not speed-wise, but certainly physically. And then you have Beal, and then you have Bogdanovich, and you have Otto Porter, who's, like, been a good shooter all year. Like, I think both teams in certain ways, like, would offer the Cavs test, but not in ways that are actually – the exact like exact replicas of what Golden State did, and there probably wasn't ever going to be a team in the East that was going to do that, right? Like maybe the best version of Boston, but is that does is that team actually exist in a way that's going to go against the Cavs? Probably not. Yeah, exactly. And I think the other thing to note here is that the Cavs' transition defense has been significantly better in the playoffs. That's something that we've harped on all year. They had the worst transition defense in the NBA. If you remember, they were giving up. 1.18 points per possession in transition, easily the worst in the NBA. Currently in the playoffs, they rank second in transition defense. They're only giving up uh, 0.938 points per possession in transition, which is obviously a massive improvement from the regular season. They only trailed the Warriors, who are giving up 0.934 points per possession in transition. So they're basically right there, one and two with the Warriors. Uh, in terms of transition defense, and that's just something where they've gotten back a lot better. They've improved their communication, and and just the you know the level of energy and engagement is so much higher that the Cavs aren't giving up these ridiculous you know wide open threes in transition or easy layups as frequently as they were in the regular season. And I think that that alone is something that's significantly improved the defense and made them much tougher on that end so far. I, my pushback on that is that I don't think we've actually seen the Cavs transition defense that much. Like we just like they're making shots, they're cleaning up boards. We're not like seeing them attacked in the same way that I think we saw in parts of the regular season. Um, I would be I would like really be intrigued to sort of see Washington because Wall's going to create these fast breaks, and at least we at least see the Cavs have to can maybe contend with that uh, for larger for longer stretches than we've seen against Toronto. Um, or Indiana, but I, I mean, I, I point out too, like the parts of the, and they've looked better against Toronto. I think they've hit it. They were certainly a lot better uh, against the Raptors than they were against Indiana, where Paul George had a lot of his best moments um, against the Cavs in round one, 
was like kind of in these moments where the Cavs' defense had to scramble and they just kind of lost him. Like I think that's sort of what can happen. And I'd be really intrigued to see if they had to kind of contend with that and come back from that against a team like Golden State. Like I mean, you look at we're right now on the TV. Golden State is up thirty-five to fifteen. Like can the Cavs if Golden State like gets really hot like that in a, in a stretch where LeBron's sitting or something? Like how do they rebound from that and how can they corral that? I kind of want to know. Um, but we may, I mean, we may never actually like get a real good answer on that, honestly. Yeah. I mean, you never know. It's going to be difficult for the Cavs to recreate what the Warriors are doing in an opponent. Um, probably difficult in the same way for the Warriors to recreate what the Cavs might do to them. So, you know, obviously it looks like we're headed, uh, that way on a collision course in, in terms of how the Cavs and the Warriors have performed so far in these playoffs. And, uh, you know, you have LeBron saying yesterday that he still thinks that they can reach another gear. Uh, and that's probably true. Um, they've, they've played really well, but I know we're going to talk about Kyrie, uh, in a little bit. And I, I think that he's obviously one focal point that you, that you can look at and say that, uh, a guy who can definitely play to a, a higher level in terms of his offense so far in the playoffs, uh, hopefully the time off will, will be helpful for him. And then obviously you kind of have golden state just tearing through Utah right now. Uh, they may have a tougher opponent in the next round, whether it's San Antonio or Houston, but, um, you know, it really does look like that uh, That collision course is, is fairly inevitable at this point in time. Yeah, it certainly feels that way to me. They like they must go, both go 4-4-4. Four, four, four. Like, they go, might do the fo-fo-fo thing. Like, that really <laughs> might happen, which is kind of, like, insane to think about. That that's how you get to the to the, the, the three, the three cool, the Cavs Warriors three. Whatever you want to call it. Yeah, whatever, you, whatever good name you want to come up with that you're going to, like, put on a t-shirt on Teespring or something like that, like... I, it's like kind of crazy that like we could get there and like this has never happened and then when it finally you you get a team playing three times in a row, it, they neither of them faced like any pushback like that would be sort of crazy right like that's just a weird way for that to happen. Yeah, I think um, it was Micah Adams from from ESPN. He tweeted that it hasn't happened since I want to say 1957 uh, that two teams were undefeated going into the NBA finals. He said 1957 featured only NBA finals in which both teams entered undefeated in playoffs Celtics three and O Hawks five and O. So obviously a totally different circumstance with a much smaller league, much fewer games in the playoffs. So you can say that this would be incredibly unprecedented for anything like that to happen. And obviously it's not sealed yet, not the case yet, but it certainly feels like that ball is rolling at a, a pretty fast pace downhill at this point. 100% agree. So let's let's talk about Kyrie. He, I think, has had – he had an interesting series. He had some really good games. I don't think he had any games quite as bad as his game three against the Pacers. Um, I think he certainly, I think, sealed he, – he, LeBron, with LeBron goading him, if, if you looked at this, and then LeBron uh, really keeping a lot of praise on him after after game four, he, he kind of sealed game four for the Cavs. He had that 11-0 run by himself, 11-2 maybe – and was really good in that fourth quarter. Had another high assist game. Had a lot of blocks and, and steals in the series. Was very active on defense. Um, like a pretty and like I think Toronto was doing a lot to try to to shut him down in certain ways, right? The like Kyrie's shooting numbers aren't great right now. They're not Kyrie numbers, but I don't actually like feel very bad about how he's played. Like I think can everything considered, um, like I, I mean I think there's like reasons to feel a little bit like weird about his shot selection. I think there's certainly it's weird that he's been so touch and go offensively, 
but I think except for parts of like moments in this series, he's done a really nice job of trying to distribute, which for me is always a big thing with him. He's defending fairly decently, uh, and I and I think you got a pretty good Kyrie, a pretty engaged Kyrie, and I and I think maybe like we're gonna get a Kyrie that if everything sort of clicks for him, you could have a Kyrie that played at a pretty close level of what we saw last year, and I think that's kind of what you need if you're if you're the Cavs and you're gonna repeat. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the process is, is okay in some points and and worse in others. Uh, a couple things that that I've noticed on this um, one in terms of his shot profile, he's not getting to the rim as often. Uh, he's taken 35 attempts in the restricted area and 33 attempts in in that floater range, so what they call in the paint non restricted area. Uh, in the regular season, uh, he t- took almost one and a half times more attempts in the restricted area than in the non-restricted area. I'm not entirely sure what, what that is, is being caused by, but he's not getting all the way to the rim as often as he was in the regular season. Uh, and then the other thing that, that is, is a little bit weird to me is that in isolation, he's been totally fine. He's scoring 1.09 points per possession, still incredibly elite levels. It's where, when he's gotten into the pick and roll, that that he's been significantly worse. He's only shooting 29.5% uh, when he's running the pick and roll. Uh, he's run it on 52% of his possessions in the regular season. He was around 47. Uh, and so basically what's happened is that he's running more pick and roll and he's running it worse. And I've seen this thing recently where he's almost looks like he's snaking the pick and roll where he's coming around it one way going back you know if he comes around to the right immediately cross over to his left hand and then he's doing the thing where he kind of slows down and and kind of tries to get the defender on his back and i think that that's something that's led to more shots from that floater range and that's not really something that you're used to seeing him do in the regular season i think he was a, a bit more decisive in that sense uh, and so I, I don't know if that's just because he doesn't feel as explosive off of that knee or exactly what's going on but I think that those two things just the fact that he's he's not getting all the way to the rim in the same way is uh, not necessarily concerning but I think that those are some of the causes of his struggles I, I would agree that I think he I think the best version of Kyrie is one that like doesn't eliminate the mid-range because he's very good at getting those pull-up shots and if you can make them like I, I'm not really saying you shouldn't take those even though they're not analytically friendly right but I think it's the best Kyrie is one who gets to the line a lot I think who puts pressure on the defense and I, and I think that's something too that's going to be really important if the Cavs end up playing Golden State again you want him because functionally he's probably going to have Clay Thompson on him although Curry likes that cross match right like that's something Curry there's that little thing on Christmas Day where he wasn't happy that he got subbed out uh, we saw the, the the straight up matching for the most part last year Kyrie is going to want to just go at him in that series like you're gonna want to put curry in the pick and roll you're gonna want to get Kyrie going downhill getting fouls or getting open lamps you want to put the Warriors in the situation and maybe I mean maybe I don't maybe something it's something Toronto did maybe it's just the fact that they had these big bodies in there I don't really know I don't know what the cause is I don't think we like it's something we didn't really even like think about talking about really until now it's not something that was discussed it's hard some it's that's hard to talk about and, like, ask about when the Cavs are just throttling teams, right? Like, it's not, like, a question you're going to ask after Kyrie scores 11 straight points to, like, seal a game four in a sweep, right? Like, that's just not something you're going to ask of him. But I think, you're right, like, his best moments scoring in that series were him getting to those spots where he's getting the bank shot. He's he's getting to the rim. That's the best Kyrie. Yeah, and I, I think that the other thing 
in terms of process, I think it's fine. Um, but in, in terms of results, it's a little, you know, not, not great is that he is 12 of 48 in the playoffs now on above the break threes, which is 25%. And really you don't see him taking threes off the catch and shoot much. He's only taken nine total catch and shoot jumpers the entire postseason. Uh, he's taken 68 jump shots off the dribble in the postseason. Uh, that's usually where he excels. But in the playoffs, he's only shooting 33.8% off of off the dribble jumpers. And, you know, that's when, you know, you see Kyrie and he's on that right wing and, you know, he goes through the legs and he pulls up for that three. And, and those are the shots that, that just aren't falling right now. And, you know, you don't really know what the cause of it is. Obviously, 48 shots is not a huge sample size. 68 shots off the dribble, not a huge sample size. But obviously, he, he's well below his... Uh, regular season totals in terms of when he's shooting off the dribble and you know he hasn't made as as many jumpers especially threes above the break and so that's one of those things i think where the the process is is okay i mean he's obviously not taking a ton of contested shots you know he's still getting a, a decent shot profile in terms of contested versus uncontested looks but you know those just aren't falling he shot 42 percent on those shots in the regular season so he's down about 10 percent uh, there and if and if he can get back up to you know forty two percent, I think that that would be huge in terms of curing some of his woes so far. Uh, it's worth noting last year took two three point uh, two catch and shoot threes per game during last year's playoffs. Uh, as you noted, he that he's oh, he's point four down, but fifty seven percent last year, which is a pretty significant. That's that's pretty significant. Like drop, you know, it's like a small sample size. Um, a little bit down from the regular season too. And that's something, too. Like, if LeBron's going to create a lot, you need to get Kyrie shots. You need to get Kevin Love shots. But if Kyrie's the guy who's not going to lose them, I think Love is functionally going to lose shots. And we've seen that before Kyrie's going to lose them. Uh, and, and I think Kyrie off ball, too. If, even if you just get him the ball in a position where he can either shoot or he can't can create, that, I think, is just something that's going to help the Cavs. I think you get him in more of the spots. Uh, you, you, I think, like, when the Cavs are at their best, they're whipping the ball. They're they're kind of doing a lot of what they do with that 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 very shooty lineup in the second quarter, and that you can't always do that with your starter. Like they're just not going to do that when they're when they have Thompson and Love out there. But you can do some of that, and I think that that's a good thing for, in my opinion, for that you kind of hit on uh, that they could get a little bit more of. Yeah, and I mean, I definitely think that you have to be encouraged by the other ways that Kyrie is making an impact on the game. Uh, and I know we talked about his defense earlier that he's done a, a good job in terms of, you know, getting those poke away steals or, you know, having having an impact just in terms of, of guarding their other team's uh, point guard or whether it's their off guard. But he's definitely had an impact on that. end. and then you look at his passing and, you know, he averaged 11 potential assists per game in the Toronto Raptors series. LeBron led the team with 12 potential assists per game. But the difference is, is that. Kyrie created 22 points off of those assists, whereas LeBron only created 13.8. And so one of the things that you've seen in this these playoffs that you, you haven't really seen in the past is that the Cavs are shooting 64% from three off of Kyrie's passes. He's creating a ton of wide-open threes for other guys. 
And the Cavs are only shooting 39% off of LeBron's passes from three, which is obviously still a huge number in terms of three-pointers. But you look at that 63% off of Kyrie's passes, and that's just a massive number. I mean, that's on seven attempts per game in the Raptors series. So that's obviously a large enough uh, sample size to think that there's something going on there. And just in terms of him creating open shots and him looking to be a passer, and it's nice to see, you know, especially with how people have ragged on his game some, how, how much he's able to make an impact even when when he's not scoring the basketball. Yeah, I think I think the Cavs functionally are going to need the best Kyrie possible, right? Like they need um, the best Kyrie, the best Kyrie that's defending, that is getting to the line, that is doing just Kyrie things. And I think they need that. I think he is always going to be the second most important guy that the Cavs have, right? Like they're, they're certainly going to need Love to play well. They're going to need Tristan to play really well. They're not beating Golden State unless Kyrie is just Kyrie a lot, right? Like, they, they need that. Um, and I think he was better than Ron Tewick. I think they still need more from him. And I think I like – I think you're right. Like, the process is good. I think I'm maybe a, little, a tad higher in the results than you. But I think they're in a good spot. Like, I, I, don't, I think it's like – that's not a hot take. Like, they're 8-0. Their offense has been, like, four points better than the Warriors so far. Um, they've been really good. And, I, and it, it just feels like – we're getting to that finals. Like we're going to get to the point where we're watching the Cavs in that rematch and we're going to get to cover that. And like that to me, it's coming a little bit easier than I thought, but I guess like just with everything that happened with Toronto, maybe, maybe that shouldn't have been a surprise. Yeah. I mean, you look at where the Cavs are and obviously they're in a great spot. You know, they're shooting the hell out of the basketball. Um, just, there's just, you know, not too much more you can say about Kyle Korver Channing Fry, Darren Williams, you know, these guys who, who are coming off the bench and, and just shooting the lights out right now. And, you know, that Channing Fry scoring 1.59 points per possession, which is absurd. He's scoring over two points per possession on spot up threes. I mean, the guy's basically making every shot. The Cavs have shot, you know, 46.5% on catch-and-shoot jumpers in the playoffs. That's absolutely insane. They're shooting a playoffs best from the mid-range. I mean, the offense is clicking all the way around. I mean, you're really seeing an optimized version of, of LeBron in the bench and just, you know, what surrounding LeBron with shooters could really do. And then, like you said, Ty Lu making that adjustment, throw Tristan Thompson in with that LeBron and lineup giving them some you know more gas on the defensive end creating more transition opportunities getting more stops and that's when you're really seeing you know that lineup come into its own basically on on both ends of the floor and it's not just going to be a lineup that's giving up you know 15 points and scoring 17 points anymore it can be a lineup that's scoring 17 points and giving up eight or ten and that's something that I, I think that was missing a bit from that lineup in in the regular season. And so Lou making that a, adjustment to throw LeBron, Tristan and bench, you know, whether it's Shump and Corver and those guys has really altered, uh, you know, how you might feel about that five man unit. And, you know, the, the unit of Tristan, LeBron, Corver, Shumpert, and Darren Williams played 18 minutes together in that series. They had an 134.2 offensive rating and a 69 defensive rating uh, and so basically you know that's just destroying world they had an 85 percent true shooting percentage i mean what more can you ask for from that line right 100 percent agree um, what's the one thing you, you want to see in in the conference finals from the Cavs? 
Uh, four wins. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, you know, you, you just want to see the process continue. Um, you you want to see how they defend. Uh, I'd like to see, you know, potentially if they're playing a team that has more shooters, uh, what that next step might be in terms of the defense. You know, if you, if you get into a situation where you can't just ignore one or two guys on defense and you have to kind of lock in on four or five of the guys, then I'd like to see what Ty Lue might pull out from there because I think that that would be instructive of what we might see against the Warriors. Um, but other than that, I mean, you know, you just like to see the offense continue humming. Uh, you'd like to see everybody stay healthy and, and ultimately it's just, you know, four wins, however you get them. Yeah. I want to, the thing I want to see is, is see what ends up happening with the second quarter lineups. I want to see what ends up happening. You know, do you see more Tristan full time? Is that something that sticks to? They go super shooty for for part of that second quarter. Um, I think that's a big area where the Cavs can have success against Golden State. Like I think those moments where the the Golden State is going to struggle to score a little bit because of their rotations in the beginning of the second quarter, and at the beginning of the fourth, that type of lineup and what's the best lineup they're going to have. We may not find out until the finals. You may see some jiggering in the finals, but I think if Lou finds something he really likes in the conference finals, that would be a pretty big development for the Cavs. Cause I think a lot of the stuff with the defense, with how Kyrie's going to play with how Kevin Love's going to play and how much will be on the floor. I don't know how much, how much of that we'll actually be able to, to, to know until we get to the finals. Like I really yeah. like I don't think we'll know until we get there, but the lineup stuff and what actually works and what can still defend at an acceptable level to me is something you can find out to an extent in the next round. Yeah, I will add one thing that that goes along with that point. It's just um, Richard Jefferson in general. Um, obviously, we didn't see him play much. Uh, either of the first two rounds, but I do still believe that you're not going to beat Golden State without Richard Jefferson getting significant minutes. Um, I don't really know what the process is behind, you know, where he's been or, or if they're just trying to save his legs or, or what exactly is going on. Um, but I, I would like to see, you know, make sure that he's getting out there. He's staying fresh because I think he's going to be one of two or three primary defenders that you're going to need to throw at Kevin Durant in the finals. So uh, I'd like to see some, you know, Richard Jefferson minutes to just be confident that he's ready to step into that role. 2017 being a year where you need essential Richard Jefferson is pretty freaking lit. It's pretty freaking lit. <laughs> like it's like that's incredible that like this is the year of Richard Jefferson like being this essential player. And I, I don't disagree. Like I don't. I think you're right. Like I think if they're gonna switch at all and they're gonna have someone who can get in front of him, like Amon Trumper can do it a little bit. Um, but I like. You need RJ. Think of the last possession yeah. of the Christmas Day game. I think I actually said this on yesterday's spot. RJ stepped in front of Durant. Like, he may have tripped him. Like, you know, like that may have been a thing. But he literally is one of the only guys who's big. Like, he's the only guy they have, unless you, like, want to trust Corver, which is probably not the best idea. Um, although he's like a solid defender, RJ is big enough, strong enough, and and is gonna be aware of what he needs to do enough in ways other guys aren't to switch onto Durant when the Warriors do those quick little screens and the Cavs have a split second to react. I think you're hundred percent right, and I think that it unlocks your optimal defensive rotation, which involves LeBron guarding Draymond. Uh, mm -hmm. And if if you don't have uh, RJ out there guarding KD. 
and you want to put LeBron on Draymond, it's it's difficult to find a guy who's going to be able to slow down KD other than RJ. So I think that by putting Jefferson on, you know, Kevin Durant, making sure that, you know, that's a like-sized guy, so you're not just going to get Durant ISO post-ups, you get the ability to put LeBron on Draymond, defend that pick and roll with, you know, Draymond and Stafford or Draymond and whoever, and have, have LeBron more in that roaming role, whereas if he has to guard Kevin Durant, he's just going to have to be in his jersey. So you're not going to be able to see LeBron as much in that free safety role in, unless he moves off of Durant, and I think that RJ is really the only guy that can unlock that you know, puzzle piece, basically. Yeah, a lot of interesting questions for the Cavs to answer uh, if and when they get there. And we'll see, too, um, if, if LeBron ends up defending Draymond, which I think probably is the best option, how much can how much is Draymond creating and how much how well is he going to shoot uh, when LeBron inevitably roams? That's going to be really interesting to see. I kind of – I know, like, we it's we're getting ahead of ourselves. It's May 8th. The finals will not start until June 1st. But that's where, that's kind of where we're at. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Mike, as always, it's been a pleasure, my man. Uh, we'll have to have you back on again soon. Absolutely. Thanks again for having me. Really appreciate it. And always good to talk to you. Always. Uh, next, listeners, tomorrow will be back. Mailbag pod. Drop those questions in to LockdownCavs at gmail.com, to LockdownCavs on Twitter, and over at our backslash Cleveland Cavs. And have a great rest of your Tuesday. Ace is the place with the helpful hardware, folks. It's Ace's biggest LED light bulb sale of the year. Right now, buy one, get one free on our best-selling LED light bulbs. Our four-pack of LED bulbs is $9.99, and our two-pack of LED floodlights is only $12.99. Buy one, get one free. There's no limit on how much you can save, so stock up now. Hurry in. Buy one, get one free on long-lasting 10-year LED bulbs, now through Monday, only at your neighborhood Ace. See participating stores for details.